0: This is Dan Greenstone in Chicago, and I'm with Christian Goodwillie at Hamilton College. Hey, Christian. Hey, Dan. How you doing? And of course, Travis Chandler, our engineer and composer at The Controls. Hey, Travis. How's it going, Dan? It's good. It's good. So last time, guys, uh, we did a really interesting episode on Zendik Farm, and we talked to Jeannie and Verd Nolan. Um, and this week, we've got another guest who was a member at Zendik Farm, and she overlapped for a bit with Jeannie and Verd, but also stayed later into its history. Uh, and Her name's Helen Zuman, and she's the author of a wonderful memoir called Mating in Captivity. And Christian, before we bring her on the show, can you just tell us a little bit, just a quick recap of uh, what Zendik Arts was all about?
1: Yeah, sure. So the Zendik Farm Arts Cooperative is a community of artists and environmentalists founded by Wolf Zendik who kind of considered himself one of the beat writers. They started in Southern California in the late 60s. Zendik itself is a Sanskrit word uh, meaning outlaw or heretic. And the movement uh, moved around, no pun intended, uh, briefly having a a commune in Texas before moving to North Carolina and ultimately settling in West Virginia. Over time, their mission evolved from more of a creative arts and music-based thing to focusing on saving the earth from an uh, environmental catastrophe, which they called Ecocide. Um, so they're actually one of the the very first truly militantly environmentally conscious uh, communal groups.
0: Great. Well let's uh let's introduce Helen. I grab a seltzer. <laughs> what really now? <laughs> <laughs> oh, look, it's so close. Oh, there you are. Yeah. Okay, okay. Right.
1: Here we go. Here she comes. Hi. Hi, Helen. Hi, Helen. Can you hear me? We can. And oh, uh, great. I'm Travis. I'm the, the audio producer and the signal sounds great. Um, that's uh, such a relief for me. <laughs>
2: <laughs> me too.
0: <laughs> Excellent.
2: Okay. My name is Helen Zuman. I lived at Zendik Farm from 1999 to 2004, and I am the author of a memoir about my time at Zendik called Mating in Captivity.
1: I I love the title of your book, Helen. Your memoir is extremely personal. It's extremely revelatory. Uh, Definitely a brave thing to have put into print, Uh, but they're the kind of sources that that folks like us that study communes love to find. And in my study of people that join communes, you definitely seem to fall into a type, and we would call that a seeker. And can you tell us a little bit about your journey as you were getting ready to graduate from Harvard, you got a grant, and then you wanted to visit a number of communes. Is that right?
2: Yeah. When I graduated from Harvard, I received a grant to travel throughout North America, visiting intentional communities that farmed, did other back-to-the-land kinds of things, I basically, at that time in my life, I didn't feel like I belonged anywhere. I was in this very high-powered environment with all these kids who were going off into banking and consulting and law and medicine and graduate school. And to me, all those things they were doing were just keeping the world-eating machine going. They were just keeping business as usual intact. And that made no sense to me. So I just wanted to do something else. And my last year of college, I lived in a place called the Dudley Co-op. It's nicknamed the Center for High Energy Metaphysics. I didn't get that joke until <laughs> years after I left. But that that was the first place maybe in my life, that I feel where I felt that I belonged. And it was the place for misfits at Harvard. It was the Harvard kids who, who didn't get along <laughs> all that well there. And part of living at the Dudley Co-op was taking much more responsibility for ourselves than the average Harvard student. We cooked for ourselves, ordered our own food, did our own cleaning, and so on. And that was the camaraderie that came from working together was... Part of what made it a place where I did feel like I could belong, and 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 it was all young people, of course, and there was kind of a hippie ethos to the place. So, part of what I was looking for when I graduated from college was a more permanent, more rural version of that. So I got this book called The Communities Directory, which is still being published, and I looked through it. I the, the summer after graduation, I went out west and visited a few places out there, but nothing really grabbed me. So when I was back in, in Brooklyn, where I'm from, in the fall of 99, I took out the book again. And instead of starting at the A's, I went to the Z's. And <laughs> there I found Zendik. Because of the experiences I'd already had of being at places that were very small or very disorganized, I really took i really warmed the Zendic description. They said there were it was mostly young people that they did farming as well as art, and I had majored in in art in college and I was interested in writing, so I didn't want to just go to the country and spend all my time digging in the dirt you know i wanted to develop myself intellectually and artistically as well so that was very attractive then i looked at the website and they there was this essay called the big lie and they said that everyone's lying to each other all the time and i was like yes that's so true and i had just i had just watched the matrix in a movie theater in boston and i and I had this extremely visceral reaction to the movie. I felt like I was in the Matrix, in the sense that I that I was living within this skin of civility, where nobody ever said what they really thought. So then, seeing the seeing that on the Zendik website, seeing the Zendik say, "Oh, that's true. You're you're not crazy. That's actually real," made it even even more attractive to me. So I called up. I had a, a conversation in which I thought I was asking smart questions. I now understand that the answers I was getting should have been red flags, but they weren't. And I arranged to to go visit. I got on a Greyhound bus and went down to North Carolina thinking I would stay for a couple of weeks and just check it out.
0: So uh, Helen, your memoir was such a beautiful meditation on how we form and understand our own identity, both individually and in relation to the group. And it seemed to me that one of the themes you were getting at was how we use stories to understand ourselves and how we use stories to understand the larger society we live in. And I'm wondering, like, as you first c- confronted it or encountered it, what was the Zendik story about both itself and the larger society?
2: Yeah, the, the Zendik story about itself and the larger society were inextricably intertwined. So I'll start with the larger society. The Zendik story about the larger society was that it was the death culture. It was heading toward ecocide. In this outside world, everyone was lying to each other, competing. You know, there was no, there was no trust. It was, it was heading off a cliff. And Zendik was the world's savior. At Zendik, we were creating a new culture based on cooperation and honesty. And real relationships. Zendik was the only place in the world where men and women could have honest relationships with each other, which was because Errol and Wolf, the founders, had pioneered that ability. But only within this communal setup where everyone was devoted to the truth could any two individuals. Relate to each other in a real way. And especially, this was the only place where men and women could end their age old battle. And according to Zendik, this battle and the resulting sexual jealousies and frustrations and so on were the root cause of war and violence and so on. So we thought that if everyone adopted our way of life, all the problems of the world would disappear.
0: Yeah, so that's quite a story that Zendik had, and it and it's pretty stark, right? You know, it's like death culture versus salvation. And I'm imagining that would really appeal to some people and be really unappealing to others, really off-putting to others. I'm wondering wh- why that spoke to you at that time in your life.
2: Yeah, I, I think it, it spoke to me for, for a number of reasons. One was that I had this, this real desire to be part of an elite. And when I arrived at Zendik, I was hearing all this strange stuff, but I thought maybe most people don't get this because it's just like really esoteric and far out, and I'm one of the few people who is capable of getting it, and I don't want to risk giving this up. What what if the Zendix really do understand the secrets to the universe? What if they are they really are building the one true way to live? And I leave, I'm gonna regret that. And and I think also it it relates to what I was saying earlier about feeling like a misfit, you know, and having felt like I didn't make sense to the people I knew, and they didn't make sense to me, and. Suddenly, I'm in a place of people who are saying, well, we're all misfits. And if you feel like you don't belong, it's not because there's something wrong with you. It's because the culture that you came out of is totally screwed up.
1: And in your memoir, you certainly talk a lot about your Catholic schooling, your Catholic upbringing, and talk about uh, a desire to have meaningful relationships with the opposite sex that maybe you didn't find avenues for within that framework. And, and Zendik really opened up possibilities for you. Could you talk about that a little bit?
2: Yeah. When I arrived at Zendik, I was a virgin. I had had one boyfriend for two months in high school and he had dumped me when I called him to tell him I got into Harvard. It's all throughout. College, I had all kinds of crushes on men. They never came to anything. I had had kind of a little bit of a fling, you know, a couple of to- flings a couple of times when I was out traveling, but I didn't feel like I could be my sexual self among people who knew me, my family, my friends. Like I had to keep that part of myself hidden. I was also just incredibly awkward. I barely knew how to flirt. So when I got to Zendik, I discovered that there was a third-party system for arranging sexual assignations between people in which I would go to a person called the the dating straighter, or short for administrator, and I would ask that person to, quote, hit up whoever i was interested in for either a walk which meant just hanging out and talking and making out or a date which meant going to a a, a date space a, a tiny shack just big enough for a double bed and a nightstand and you know get naked and have sex so those were the two options for getting together but when i heard about this it did not feel like a constraint to me it felt like liberation like here not only it, our sexual activities, you know, conducted kind of out in the open with the knowledge of everyone around me, but there's someone who's going to help me make this happen.
1: Uh, That's really fascinating. And I just, I want to clarify for myself and also for the listeners, that was not an aspect of Zendik that you were aware of before you actually came there. Is that correct?
2: Right. I knew nothing about that before I showed up.
1: So people shouldn't misunderstand you as someone who is out seeking that type of scenario was just an added benefit that you discovered when you got there.
2: Right. Yeah. I wasn't thinking much about romance at all on this, on this whole quest. I was much more thinking about finding a way to live that had integrity.
0: Yeah. And so I wanted to ask you that, you know, that Zendik was probably, I guess, best known by the outside world for its famous slogan, stop bitching and start a revolution. Had you heard that before you arrived at Zendik?
2: No, I hadn't heard the slogan. I hadn't seen a magazine. I hadn't heard the music. The only thing I'd interacted with previously was the one Zendik on the phone and their website, which was very primitive because it was 1999.
0: Um, Did it seem like a revolutionary place? Was that the vibe?
2: Well, I remember in my first few days being extremely skeptical about this supposed revolution. The the particular thing that I remember about my skepticism had to do with music. I grew up in kind of an ascetic way. My mother used to make fun of me for listening to, quote, junky music, which was her term for all popular music. We didn't have a television. So I had kind of a snooty attitude towards popular music and i remember being on a work crew in the horse barn and people were listening to metallica and i thought how can you pretend to be revolutionaries if you're just listening to you know crappy mainstream music like i didn't understand that so initially i didn't buy it at all but the the longer i spent there kind of immersed in this milieu with all these people who did totally believe it, who seemed extremely confident that this was true, the more I came to believe that this revolution was kind of subtle, you know, and it was something you sort of had to grow to understand over time. And if it didn't look incredibly dramatic to me, that wasn't because it wasn't dramatic or it wasn't going to be effective. That was just because I didn't have the right eyes yet.
1: And that jibes, I think, with what we have read with some contemporary criticism of Zendik, that they're talking about a revolution, yet they're actually just doing farm work. Um, But it's just a subtle thing that's uh, almost in the way some communes work, where the the way of life that you're practicing is enacting that revolutionary process and it it made me wonder was the majority of the work that you did agricultural work while you were there
2: well when i first moved there the the installation in north carolina was was fairly new the farm had just moved from florida to north carolina maybe 6 months or so before i arrived so There was a lot of landscaping to do. We built a lot of rock walls. There was a lot of just plain old building going on, you know, digging trenches for internet cables and stuff like that. So that kind of dominated my early days there, but kind of tapered off after a while. I did participate in growing food and milking goats and, and building and stuff like that. I also did a lot of cooking and I, you know, food ordering. So I was very involved in the administration of the kitchen. And then a big part of the work that I did and that a lot of us did was selling, was going out in the street and selling our magazines and CDs and stickers and t-shirts at concerts and festivals and just on city streets. And also eventually we started selling t-shirts and stickers over the phone and I did that as well. So yeah, like the, the two main areas of work were stuff we needed to do to keep the farm going day to day and, and selling.
0: And did you find that kind of work satisfying, uh, and fulfilling? Was the there an a, the- sort of an esprit de corps among the, the communards of, you know, like we're in this together and we're working hard, but it's for a noble cause or did it feel like sort of drudgery and menial?
2: I think the work that I enjoyed most was the work that I was, I was able to have some, some agency, you know, about like when I was ordering the food or organizing the walk-in or, you know, planning the menu, uh, you know, I, I had some, I had some oversight. Often though, I felt like I was just sort of following the leader. I didn't have an overview. I didn't understand how the individual tasks that I was doing. It had to do it, how it related to the larger whole. And also, there were times when I just had great fun working with other people. I especially I remember very fondly all the times that we moved large amounts of stuff using chains. Like I remember moving like hundreds of cinder blocks with like maybe twenty people in a chain. and and it's so much more fun and actually so much more efficient to pass the block down the chain to every person than it is for any single person just lug a block you know so I do have good memories of that as far as the selling selling was a bitch it was incredibly difficult for me I did not come naturally to me at all I was kind of I'm basically a shy person but I really wanted to go selling when I first arrived because it seemed like you got respect for going selling. It seemed like people formed close relationships out on the street because you were going out into into a war zone and you had to really be on top of things. Also, if you went selling, you got to eat peanut butter and tahini, which were not available (laughs) at home. (laughs) And when I first started going selling, another thing I liked about it, even though it was really hard, was that I did get a sense of ownership. Like I had a task to do and I could measure how well I had done at the end of the day. You know, I went my first time selling, I went to Athens, Georgia. I worked for, I don't know, 12, 14 hours. I made $106. And that was good for a first time. And I could say, you know, I did this, I made this money. Um, as, as time went on, you know, and I continued to sell, I continued to have, you know, terrible times and okay times. And sometimes it, selling was amazing. I would say when I was selling, I reached a state of agape, of love, love for everyone. That happened quite a few times, and it was incredible. Um, Actually, that was one of the things that I missed after I left. Like, how was I going to get that feeling again?
1: Well, and it's evident from reading your memoir that you had great academic success I remember, I think reading, did you get the highest grades in the history of your high school? Is that right? <laughs> yes. So, I mean, so, you know, you're clearly a driven person. And I'm wondering, um, I, I would imagine your family had some uh, role in in providing stability for you to have that success. I might be wrong. Were they concerned when they learned more about Zendik or when they would hear you talking about the death culture and eco side and all these things, did they worry that you had gotten involved in something maybe they weren't comfortable with?
2: Yeah, I would say that every member of my immediate family was worried about me and did think that I had gotten involved in something that was not optimal. The, the, the thing was that I wasn't even necessarily talking to them about the death culture because my strategy with regard to my family, most of the time, was just to keep them at a distance. You know, I would talk to them maybe or, of course, interact with them when they came to see me, but I, and maybe I would go off in a tirade some, you know, at some times, but, but mostly I was just, I was just keeping them in a distance. Like, I wouldn't tell them what was, you know, what was really going on. I would just bullshit about, you know, milking the goats or whatever.
1: You were happy though with what was going on for yourself at that time at Zendik, right? I mean,
2: well, I wouldn't say I was happy. I would say I was caught. I believed. I didn't think there were other options. I thought this was the right thing to do. So I had, you know, moments and days and maybe even longer periods of happiness and feeling like I was you know, I was doing well, or I was in a romantic relationship that I really liked or something. There were certainly, yes, times of joy and happiness, and also times of abject misery, but I wasn't going to leave because of those. Those were just, you know, the fires I needed to go through to purify myself mm-hmm. for the revolution.
0: <laughs> yes. But it seems from your memoir that you, at some point, started to have this gnawing feeling that Zendik had maybe drifted away from its its core values in the way it actually lived or or I don't know if it ever lived those values but that you know you were struggling to reconcile the idealism of the slogans and of the philosophy with the reality of how it was being lived can you talk about that
2: well I I mean I I don't really recall having those kinds of thoughts when i lived at zendik i did leave for a couple months about halfway through my time there but not because i thought zendik wasn't living up to its ideals it was because i thought i was such a sad sack that i was a disgrace and i should go out into the death culture and get a dose of my only alternative so i could come back and be a more devoted revolutionary there was one incident That I you know talk about in the book about after I'd been there for about a year, I learned shortly after I arrived that there were levels at Zendik. There was a a pyramid, and people wore different colored wristbands to signify where they were in the pyramid. So, about a year after I got there, we had a dramatic meeting in which in which all of us were asked to state our criticisms about Zendik and. Uh, you know, uh, under the pretense of glasnost we're going to get it out, get all this stuff out in the open. We're going to become stronger because of it. Then we all just got shamed for having said all that. And it, and the upshot of the meeting was that the the levels disappeared. B- but, I, but I did have a moment of dissonance because I knew that nothing had changed. But I didn't go further and connect that to the idea that Zendig wasn't living up to its ideals. I just Sort of let it sit there, and in, in the last little bit that I was at Zendik, some things some things did happen that made me start to that made me start to have questions. Right before I left, the whole farm moved again from North Carolina to West Virginia, and this was a a huge project that Errol had to pull off. Usually, she was very good at changing her story gradually. You know, but in this situation, she had so much going on that she made some kind of sudden moves, like using uh, as her realtor, this this guy named Jim Smith, whom she denounced as the Antichrist for years. I did take note, and I had thoughts that I considered criminal, you know? (laughs) So, but those thoughts really, they would not, I don't think they would have been enough to get me out of there.
1: So, I mean, having gone through Harvard uh, and were you, what did you major in at Harvard?
2: I majored in visual and environmental studies, which is Harvard E's for okay. visual art.
1: Well, yeah, I'm at Hamilton College, so we're kind of the junior league version of that type of thing. But well, shoot, I shouldn't have said that now.
0: <laughs> um, in any <laughs> it's case, too late. we'll cut it out. Um, no, Travis, leave it in. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I, did you ever in your in your life prior to joining Zendik hear about places like the Oneida Community or? any of these other well-known American communes that had so many remarkable similarities to what you were entering as Zendik or, or even more horrible recent things like the, not to compare Zendik to the Manson family, but you know, these kind of situations.
2: When I was, I think nine or 10, I had watched a, a documentary made for the 10th anniversary of Jonestown. Oh yeah. But I, you know the the way that tragedy was presented definitely at that time in that place was just wow look what these batshit crazy people did they're utterly insane it, it, it was not presented as something that was part of a pattern or something that that anyone could learn from or try to understand
0: mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah and I, I guess to follow up on that i'm curious about you mentioned a minute ago how everything flowed down from Errol's judgment and I gather she was a charismatic leader and I'm wondering what your impressions were of her when you entered and then if they changed over time while you were there
2: yeah when I when I first arrived I saw Errol as being kind of wise and mysterious. When I first arrived, I had very little to do with her. She lived in a different house. She mostly interacted with people in her inner circle who were higher up, and I just had very little to do with her. As time went on and I began to have more to do with her, I saw additional sides of her, not just this woman who seemed like she could bore right into your soul and tell you what you were thinking, but I also saw her just yelling at people and ripping people apart. She did that a lot. I also saw her, you know, superintend the farm and kind of take care of business and and glad hand the neighbors and kind of help Zendik make its way in the world and protect Zendik from any public opinion that might have made us outcast. And then I had, you know, periods of of some version of of closeness with her when she was mentoring me in, in one of my romantic relationships. But always along with the intimacy came a great deal of fear that it would be withdrawn at any moment, that I would do something wrong and she would dismiss me, which was what she did. That was her pattern, bring someone in, raise them up, find fault, and kick them to the curb.
1: And that's, of course, a classic mode of psychological control that's used in in many groups beyond just communes, and uh, it made me wonder... You discussed she lived in a, a separate place, and I remember you discussing when you all moved to West Virginia, at a certain point she said no one else could use the kitchen in the big house because you were going to ruin it, so you guys had to cook in the basement, the wristbands indicating different levels of membership. At what point did you really start to question the nature of equality at Zendik?
2: Well... That episode with the kitchen did give me pause. It felt like a punch in the gut because I had thought when we moved to West Virginia, maybe the hierarchy would really dissolve or at least weaken. But the explanation for the gut punch, you know, always showed up so quickly and so I just did gymnastics in my mind to to make it okay. So really, I didn't truly start questioning these things about Zendik until long after I left.
1: Even having siblings, you know, growing up, you must have experienced some sibling rivalry and well, this is not fair. He gets this or she gets this or whatever. None of those types of feelings you were so committed to what, what they were teaching you that like you didn't allow yourself even those basic human instincts.
2: Well, there, I did, I did have those feelings. I had, I, I was, I got, I got so furious one time that I went down to our tree in this, in this remote part of the farm in North Carolina and I beat it with a metal pole until my palms bled. Oh, wow. <laughs> the thing was that I was constantly explaining away these feelings. I was from the deaf culture. Wolf said, you were raised in corruption and taught to be corrupt. So feelings of jealousy or anger or that's not fair, especially if that's not fair was directed at something Errol did, those feelings had no place to go. When I was at Zendik, I cried so much. I cried uncontrollably, <laughs> like, very often and after i left when i finally left mentally emotionally really freed myself i stopped doing that and and i didn't wasn't trying to stop i just did and i realized all that crying i did at vendic it was not grief and it was not sorrow. it was rage crying was the only way i could safely let out my rage
0: wow I read in your, your memoir that eventually you came to embrace the word cult to describe Zendik. And, you know, I'm not an academic. Uh, I'm a podcaster and documentarian. Christian's an academic. And I know there's a bit of a controversy about that word in the academic literature to describe religious groups. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on that.
2: Yes. I, I love and embrace the word cult because it freed me from Zendik, I physically left Zendik in September of 2004. I was kicked out. I was still a true believer. I spent the next year plus feeling doomed, thinking that I had failed at the only thing that ever was going to matter, knowing that I had lost what felt like my home and family, and thinking my only two options were to go back to the farm and grovel to be taken back or to live the rest of my life feeling like I had screwed up into that horrifying binary came some doubts and some questions that just kind of happened on their own. Once I had sort of found a place to land and had some breathing room and wasn't totally worried about survival. I started thinking for example, you know, in a universe as vast as ours, how is it possible that there could only be two options? Like that can't be true. And I started acknowledging the things that I had hated about living in Zendik. So there were things happening, there were kind of little bits of of light appearing in my in my doom cloud. But but what really freed me was a watershed conversation I had with another ex Zendik, in which we retold the story of Zendik, changing it from Zendik is the most amazing place ever and we didn't make it there because we weren't qualified to, you know, it didn't work for us because it is a fucked up place. And in that conversation, my friend started to explain to me the cult pattern and told me about a book called Combat and Cult Mind Control. That conversation in itself, simply retelling the story from the perspective that Zendik fit this pattern was just in- incredible for me. Then I read the book, and I, I saw that Zendik fit this pattern, that Zendik was not singular. And that kind of gave me a structure on which to build a new story, and it gave me some stability in claiming my freedom like no this isn't just in my mind this isn't just something me and my friend think like there's outside evidence for this so i am extremely grateful to the word cult for what it did for me in that regard and at the same time i see that it has it has problems because it is mostly defined by association with Jonestown, Waco, Heaven's Gate, etc. And it is used to cast adherents out of the ring of human understanding. Those crazy people do those crazy things. And that is not true at all. So I see that it has issues and I also freely use it because I I believe it's it's extremely useful as well.
1: That's really interesting. The last point you made, because the one of our guests on our previous episode, talking about a historic group, the Caution Unity, which was in Florida, has the exact same attitude about using that term to other people and immediately dismiss and discount them, um, even if ultimately their their ideas are rejected. Um, that it's just a dangerous kind of a knee jerk reaction. I wanted to ask you. When you read that book and had that conversation with your friend, uh, I know that Errol lived for a while longer. I know she had a recurrence of cancer. Did you ever have the opportunity to have kind of a final reckoning personally with her? Or did you ever reach out to any of your former comrades who were still at Zendik and may have been struggling to break away?
2: I did not have a final reckoning with Errol. However, I, I know that I got to her. So right when I started to recognize Zendik as a cult, I also started writing about it that way in public on my, on my live journal. And then a little while later, in response to a very nasty custody case that Errol was pursuing against former members, I wrote and shared a Zendik FAQ which explained in great detail exactly how Zendik worked. And I think it was, it was around that time, Errol had a radio show and she never referred to me my name, but she, she said things on her radio show that made it obvious that she had noticed what I was saying and that she was very angry about it, which was, which was lovely. Another thing that happened, at one point, a woman who still lived there wrote to me and and kind of asked me, like, will you just stop already, like, saying these nasty things about us? Like, haven't you caused enough pain? And, and she was claiming that things had changed at the farm, which was an old story. They had been, been saying this, you know, forever. Oh, those were the bad old days. We don't do those things anymore. So I I asked her well does everyone have their own bank account now you know are are people's names now on the deed so and she didn't respond there there was no evidence that things were really different also I think this was in 2009 I was living in Manhattan at the time and I happened to walk through Times Square, which was something that as a native New Yorker, I would never, I would just never do. Like you just don't do that. But one night I did. And I saw a couple Zendix out in Times Square selling magazines. So I sat down at a table to kind of gather my wits, like what should I do? And I decided because I knew when I lived at Zendic, like all I really wanted was to make money so that I could prove I had I was doing okay. I was like, I know what I'll do. I'll go up to this Zendic and I'll tell him I want to buy a magazine I'll like hand them five dollars so I did and he's like he's like wait a minute you're Helen Newman which was my name at the time like I'm not giving you a magazine and anyway we ended up kind of arguing a bit and I told him you know I've been where you are you've never been where I am now he he said something about you know I was just Picking a fight with Errol or something. And the conversation ended with him sticking his fingers in his ears and yelling, fuck you, fuck you, fuck you to me over and over again. And and I walked away.
0: Wow. Wow.
1: (laughs) As far as the system of dating, in your book, you deal with a lot of the same issues people dating anywhere deal with desire, yearning, uh, rejection sometimes a forced separation because of the dynamics of the group. Do you think that a system like the one that was used at Zendik in the end did afford people more happiness or stability?
2: I think that there were were bright spots, like how it felt to me when I first arrived. And also, I think that because I was there, I did have a wider variety of sexual experiences with a wider variety of people than I would have elsewhere. And in some ways, I had those experiences in a, in a relatively safe place. There were ways in which it was kind of safe to explore and I and I appreciate that. But at root, none of us was in charge of our own sexuality because Errol could say at any moment, You are not allowed to get together with that person anymore. This relationship is over. You are screwing with the revolution. You're fucking with our survival. You should go get an apartment. So, yeah. But then another thing that I think maybe was positive about the the Zendik sort of sexual dating milieu, I, I came to understand how at Zendik, the fact that most people had had sex with most other people did create some kind of a web of protection and and connection among us, you know, where it was very likely that whoever you were out in the work crew with was someone who you had also had sex with. And there was something sort of warm and good about that.
0: That's so interesting. And, you know, one of the things that's fascinates me about communes is there's often, uh, I guess, a sort of vision of human nature that's in the DNA of the commune that's more expansive and you know more plastic in some ways than that of mainstream, typical nuclear family, monogamous American society. And communes tend to push the boundaries on things like jealousy and the web of connections into a more tribal you know, sort of space, I guess. And I think a lot of people would say, well, any kind of polyamorous community is probably doomed because possessiveness is going to kick in and people are going to pair off. And then certainly when children are involved, you're going to have the sort of biological uh, imperative that people are going to want to favor their own children. And so this sort of group identity is going to always be in tension with that. And I'm wondering how you think about that question, about whether it's possible to have a tribal group identity given the sort of constraints of human nature.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, what you, what you described did play a role in Zendik's dissolution. After Errol started losing her mental powers and her daughter gained more power, the romantic milieu changed a lot. Fawn got married. When I lived at the farm, marriage was, you know, death culture bullshit. Like, nobody did that. But Fawn went ahead and did that. And then a number of other couples did it as well, and also by the end of Zendik, the percentage of adults with children was much higher than it had been earlier on. So, so that dynamic did show up towards the end, and did I think play a role in people eventually leaving? Um,
0: I gather that when you joined uh, Zendik, you were quite idealistic, and then you know, obviously, in it was, at least in some ways, a very hard experience. And I'm wondering, has your idealism survived? Are, would you describe yourself as an idealistic person at this point?
2: Hmm. I, I don't know that I would describe myself as idealistic. I do, I do see life and the world we live in as being made out of stories. I had the experience of living inside a story that I was absolutely certain was true, and then finding out that it really wasn't. So I know in my body, I know that I am capable of fully accepting a story that is totally optional slash false. So when I look at the world as it is now, and I look at seemingly intractable problems like continuing ecocide and debt-based currency and just the world-eating machine, I see it as a story. I see it as, as very entrenched, but also completely optional. I don't believe that how things are is, is how they have to be. And at the same time, I Fully accept how things are as the way it is right now, and I attempt to use my powers as a storyteller and a truth seeker to maybe, you know, open some open some gaps in this scrim of this is just the way things are, you know. And I'm I'm also really interested in heresy, you know, and what are the things that, that in in this circle or that circle, you're just not allowed to say, what are you just not allowed to to talk about? So often, I feel like it's not, it's not even about changing things. It's just about admitting what's actually going on. Just being willing to state things plainly, you know, (laughs) You don't have to have a grand plan to change things. But, you know, like, for example, if, you know, the U.S. government or the, the American people were to truly reckon with slavery, just, just say what happened, you know, just say what happened in public, that, w- that would be amazing. And, and I can imagine those things happening. So if that's idealistic, I, I guess I am
0: maybe well yeah and you know we in our first episode we talked about robert owen who came to america when 1826 christian Uh, 1820 24 actually but the community is yeah 25 26 and we talked about how he was invited to speak at congress and what just really struck me was he went to congress to give a speech and he denounced marriage religion and capitalism and i was just like kind of Dumbstruck that Congress would invite anyone to come say those things to them in the 1820s when I don't think they would now, and so I, for one, am appreciative of people who have the, have the courage to step outside of the story or the system and and see it with a fresh eye and and call bullshit, you know, when it needs to be called. So um, I'm really grateful to hear your your story, your stories, I guess I should mm-hmm. say. Uh, I think I'm out of questions, Christian Travis. Any anything? Um,
1: I think you guys are pretty thorough. I don't have anything. I'm, I'm going to go look and see if I have any heretics in my past now, too. <laughs> to that, perhaps that's something I'm going to pass along to my daughter. We'll see.
0: <laughs> well, that was fantastic, Colin. We really enjoyed talking with you.
2: Yeah, thank you. Okay.
0: All right. All
1: right. All right.
0: Bye. Thanks. Bye. Good night. Bye.